I'm your host, William Tapley. Also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here. Just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, September 2nd, 2013. That's right, this is a bonus episode of Fighting for the Faith. You will be listening to it while I'm enjoying my Labor Day holiday. tuning in you're listening to fighting for the faith my name is chris rosebro i am your servant in jesus christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment the goal of which help you to think biblically help you to think critically and help you compare what people are saying in the name of god to the word of god there's no shortage of crazy things being said out there we take the time to slow down stop and well examine what people are saying in context to see if that's what the scriptures really say now we live in an age of um radical skepticism you can think of post-modernity as a form of radical skepticism. And as a result of it, we have all kinds of attacks that are launched and leveled against the biblical text and people who say, oh, you can't trust what your Bible says. Is that true? No, <laughs> like not at all. And if if you are familiar with the discipline or the scholarly discipline known as textual criticism, if you've taken classes on it or you know Greek and Hebrew and you've learned how to read your, your variant apparatus at the bottom of your Greek New Testament, then you understand that uh, we, we now uh, are in possession. I mean, we, the church, are in possession of a, well... Literally almost 6,000. It's not quite, it, it, I don't know what the new number is, but it's almost 6,000 manuscripts, Greek net manuscripts of the, uh, uh, of the New Testament. And some of these date back into the third, into the fourth, into this, you know, there's fragments going back into the second century. We even have a fragment from the first century. I mean, and so the question is, can you trust what's written in the New Testament? The answer is, yes, you can. Now, think back with me, if you would. It'll just go back in time mentally to the time of the Reformation. One of the big, big innovations at that time 
was that uh, the reformers were taking the Bible and for the first time translating it into the common languages of of the countries that they lived in. You think of Tyndale in uh, Great Britain. You think of uh, Luther in uh, in Germany. And the question is, what text were they using uh, in order to translate? Uh, you know, into these, uh, into their uh, native languages. The answer: Well, they were using a text that actually was uh, started by Erasmus of Rotterdam. And Erasmus, what he had at his disposal at the time that he put together his Greek New Testament was seven different Greek manuscripts, none of them really going back, I think, farther than, what, the 11th or 12th centuries? And so they weren't really that old. And this was what the best, the, the best manuscripts that they had available at the time. And uh, this has come to be known as the Textus Receptus. But since the time of the Reformation, since the time of the Reformation, archaeology has given us thousands, thousands and thousands of manuscripts, of papyrus fragments. I mean, it's, it's oh, what you're about to hear is going to uh, describe just what the wealth that is that we have of all of these different texts uh, and fragments of the New Testament, what they've provided us with as far as <clears throat> giving us the ability to know with confidence that the biblical text that we have in front of us as we're reading our English Standard Version of the Bible or your your New King James or whatever, that, that what we're dealing with, it, we know what the biblical text says and we're very, very close to knowing with uh, with very good academic precision what the original manuscripts, which no longer exist anymore, what the original manuscripts said. And so textual criticism, unlike higher criticism, has been a very important uh, discipline to help us understand what you know, what God's word really said, and all of these different manuscripts, well, they've really helped fill out this picture, and you know, and it's a great discipline. And so, what we're going to be listening to today is a lecture uh, uh, recently, not that long ago, recently delivered uh, by uh, Dr. Dan Wallace uh, of uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, and he's also on the board of directors for the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. Uh, Dr. Wallace is not a liberal. He's not a Jesuit. This is a man who stands up for the uh, you know for the scriptures against radical skeptics like Bart Ehrman. In fact, there's a fantastic debate uh, that he did with uh, Bart Ehrman that you could purchase at the at the website for the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. And so, what we're going to be listening to today is a lecture that he delivered not that long ago entitled "Did Copyists Make Errors in the New Testament Manuscripts?" and and what does this do regarding our ability to know? Know uh, what the scriptures say, and and so this it's a fantastic good primer on um, on this, the the discipline of textual criticism. And so, without any further ado, I'll just get right into it uh, for today's La- Labor Day bonus episode of Fighting for the Faith. Here is uh, Doctor Dan Wallace in his lecture: Did copyists make errors in the New Testament manuscripts? Here we go. I'm going to talk to you today about the reliability of the New Testament text. What this deals with is a discipline known as textual criticism. Textual criticism is that science which tries to determine the exact wording of an ancient document that no longer exists, but it has copies. 
And it gets down to a very, very precise level, level, right down to the very letters. I want to give you an illustration of why this is important so that I can justify my existence. <laughs> in the 12th century in England, there was a monk by the name of Andrew who had been studying in what is the equivalent of a seminary today. And he uh, graduated from the school and he was sent to a monastery. And the head of the, the school wrote to the abbot of the monastery and said, Andrew is a peculiar fellow. You need to handle him in, in, a, in a different way than you would normal folks. In other words, he was pretty much like every Dallas seminary graduate. <laughs> Takes them about five years to thaw out from the experience. So um, Andrew goes to this monastery and uh, reads this uh, text from the... Uh, uh, the principal of the school, and, he's, and he, he notices that and, Andrew is rather anal. Am I allowed to say that here? <laughs> anyway, that's what Andrew was. And so the abbot says, Andrew, what I'd like you to do is start copying out some of our sacred texts, some of the rules that we follow in this monastery and that we've been following for centuries. And so he puts him in a little room, and he starts copying these texts, just exactly what Andrew wanted to do. Be a scribe, copy out text, letter for letter, word for word. And after a while, Andrew comes back, and there's a knock on the abbot's door. The abbot opens the door. Holy Father, I think there's a discrepancy in these manuscripts. I'd like to see if we've got some older ones that I can look at. Very earnest, young Andrew was. So the abbot takes him to another room which has older manuscripts. He says, start copying these manuscripts out if you would, Andrew. And so he does that. About 45 minutes later, another knock. Holy Father, uh, there's still discrepancies. Uh, can I see the earliest manuscripts you've possibly got in this monastery? And so the abbot sizes them up and says, you know, we've never, ever allowed a new monk to do that. In fact, nobody has seen those manuscripts in centuries. But I think you're a, a, a reliable fellow. You're going to be careful, which was another way for saying he's anal. And uh, so the abbot takes him back to the bowels of the library, going through a labyrinthian uh, route, uh, subterranean, gets finally to this little place, takes about 10 minutes to get there, and opens up this uh, locked room. And here Andrew sees the original legal documents that set the lifestyle for the monastery. Begins to copy them out. And about 15 minutes later, there's all sorts of knocks on the abbot's door, which I could do if I had more than two hands. And uh, it was all the monks in the monastery. And they said, Holy Father, this new monk has just gone berserk. And they said, he's, he's, he's crying hysterically. We don't know what's wrong with this guy. And so they all rushed down to the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, library room where he's hiding and doing his work. And he's just weeping loudly. He's banging his head on the table. And the abbot says, Andrew, what's wrong? They left out the letter R. This guy really is anal. What? They left out the letter R? Yes. The word is supposed to be celebrate. <laughs> this guy got it. The rest of you just took a little while. So. Well, that justifies my existence. The New Testament has been under barrage 
in the last few years. The Old Testament has been sieged. The biggest apologetic question used to be, is it true? Now the question that's on the horizon, and is increasingly so, is did God really say that? Is that what the Bible really says? And in that scholarly tome, The Da Vinci Code, we read the following. The Bible has evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. Well, we've heard something like that, haven't we? All of us have heard something like that. Hasn't the Bible been translated and retranslated so many times we have no idea what the original text said? And so skeptics can just push it off at arm's length and not deal with it. But Dan Brown got this from some better sources than he is. And there are others who are joining this chorus. Atheists, for example. C.J. Werleman, in his provocatively titled book, Jesus Lied, we do not have any of the original manuscripts of the Bible. The originals are lost. We don't know when, and we don't know by whom. What we have are copies of copies. In some instances, the copies we have are 20th generation copies. Now, my area of expertise is ancient manuscripts and copies of copies and copies. Werleman bases this statement, the copies we have are 20th generation copies, on absolutely nothing. He is not a scholar, he's not a textual critic, probably doesn't know Greek or Hebrew, and yet he's saying this kind of thing. What's his source? And how has he perverted that source? Well, it's not just atheists. Muslims, too, are joining this. And Al-Azami, who is a famous British Muslim in his, uh, his book on the history of the Quranic text from Revelation to Compilation, has been selling like hotcakes in the UK. He says, The Orthodox Church, being the sect which eventually established supremacy over all the others, stood in fervent opposition to various ideas, also known as heresies, which were in circulation. And he goes through and enumerates various heresies that Jesus was not divine or Jesus was not human or he became divine at his baptism, that that's when God fused two different persons together, something like that. And then Al-Azami says, in each case, this sect, the one that would rise to become the Orthodox Church, deliberately corrupted the scriptures so as to reflect its own theological visions of Christ while demolishing that of all rival sects. This is becoming the standard view of Muslims. They've said it before. Now they're saying it with greater emphasis, and they always have a little footnote to another text written by a bona fide New Testament scholar, a man who went to Moody Bible Institute, who got his degree from Wheaton College, and then he went on and got a master's degree at Princeton Seminary in New Testament studies with several years of Greek and got his Ph.D. from Princeton Seminary, again, majoring in New Testament textual criticism. Along the way, he abandoned his faith, and he became an agnostic. His name is Bart Ehrman, and he's written the book, Misquoting Jesus, the Story Behind Who Changed the Bible and Why. This is the first popular-level book on New Testament textual criticism, and it essentially is a, an appeal to people to realize the text is not what we think it is. It's been changed over the centuries by Orthodox scribes, maybe well-meaning scribes, but they've perverted the text. Now, Bart and I have known each other for 30 years, and I've seen him progress or degress, if you will, from Orthodox Christian into an agnostic. This is the source behind these quotations by Muslims 
an atheist. And in his book, Misquoting Jesus, he says, not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. He goes on and says a number of other things, and I'll be referring to him a couple more times in this lecture. But I want to begin by saying this. There's a couple of attitudes that all of us need to very much avoid as we think about these issues. The first attitude is that of radical skepticism or total despair. We don't have to have the attitude that we can't get back to the original text of the Bible. We can, and we have, and I'll show that today. But the other attitude is one of absolute certainty. And this we also must avoid like the plague. Some of you use the New American Standard Bible. Some of you use the ESV. Others use the NIV. There may be some here that use the NRSV or the Net Bible or hundreds of other translations in English. And when you start making a comparison between the two, what you discover is, wait a minute, this one says me in this verse, and this one says you. This over here says the Lord Jesus, and this one, this uh, translation says Jesus Christ. Which one is accurate? Which one is telling the truth? How can I possibly tell? This, this one has a verse in it that is not found in this translation. We do not have absolute certainty as to what the original text of the Bible said. But there's a big difference between radical skepticism and absolute certainty, and where we need to land as we think about this as reasonable Christians is extremely important. There's two attitudes to avoid and four questions to answer. The first one is, how many textual variants are there? When my professor in college told us how many variants there were on a Friday afternoon at Biola University in my first year of Greek, I went home and it was just chicken little time all weekend. He didn't give us any more information. You'll soon see how many textual variants there are. What kinds of variants are they? What's the nature of these variants? I mean, are they single letters, you know, leaving out an R or something that's totally insignificant like that? (laughs) What theological beliefs depend on textually suspect passages? This is extraordinarily important. We see in the New Testament that Jesus is called God. Is every place where he's called God textually suspect? Do we have no certainty that he is actually called God in the Bible? What about the resurrection? Are some of those passages suspect? Are all of them suspect? Do we have manuscripts that don't see he was raised from the dead? What about the virgin birth? What about the Trinity, salvation by faith? All sorts of issues. And finally, is what we have now, what they wrote then? Is what we have today in our hands what the apostles and their associates wrote 2,000 years ago? So we will begin with a preliminary question. And since... Nobody's coming after me just lunchtime. I figured you all are very spiritual, and this is a great day to fast. So we'll just go, we'll go till about 1 o'clock, something like that. <laughs> the preliminary question is, don't we have the original New Testament anymore? And the answer is, no, we don't. It turned to dust centuries ago, probably by the end of the second century. These were originally 27 documents sent to a variety of churches in the ancient world that got collected later on. But the originals must have worn out within 100 years of the writing of them. And the reason I say that is they were all written on papyrus. Papyrus doesn't last real long. It's actually stronger than paper. It's it's kind of got the consistency of uh, uh, not a garbage sack, grocery sack, that's the word. I don't do much shopping. Um, 
Not plastic grocery sacks either, but the paper kind. You know, that's what, that's what it's like. Now, these papyrus texts, they would have been copied and recopied and handled, and the early church would have uh, disseminated these documents, and they would have worn out. So we don't have the original New Testament anymore. But of the copies that we do have, and we'll talk about how many we have, don't they all say exactly the same thing? I mean, after all, that's what Muslims claim for the Quran. Don't Christians claim the same thing for the Bible? And the answer is no, we don't, and we can't. Our two closest early related manuscripts have between six and ten differences per chapter. Those are the close ones. How many more do we have later on? Not only that, but if you look at the New Testament, it's got about 260 chapters. You extrapolate that out. That means we've got, for our two most closely related manuscripts, about 2,000 differences. That's a few. So because of the disappearance of the originals and the differences among the manuscripts, we cannot say that we uh, have the original New Testament. If there were no differences... Or if we, didn't have, if we still have the originals, we could say we know exactly what it says. Textual criticism is necessary because of these differences and because the originals don't exist anymore. Well, let's start with a number of variants, and let me just define what a variant is. It's any place among the manuscripts in which there is variation in wording, including word order, omission, or addition of words, even spelling differences, little things like single letters which, by the way, in Greek are not going to be nearly as significant as the illustration I gave you. So let's talk about the quantity of variants, the number. How many do we actually have? Well, first of all, in the Greek New Testament itself, we have approximately 140,000 words. Or, as Andrew would know, 138,162 words. And don't ask me how I know that number either. Um, About 140,000 words. How many variants do we have among the manuscripts? The best estimate is about 400,000. So for every word in the New Testament, we have about two and a half textual variants. That's what my professor told me that one Friday afternoon. And it looks like my time is up, so let's close in prayer, shall we? No, I'm going to do a Paul Harvey on you. I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. The reason we have a lot of textual variants is that we have a lot of manuscripts. If there was one copy of the New Testament today, it would have no variants. As soon as you have a second copy, you'll have variants, and a third and a fourth. And the more manuscripts you have, you say, wait a minute, this one seems to be the ancestor of these. And here's one that seems to be the ancestor of that one. The more manuscripts we have, the better able we are to get back to reconstructing the wording of the original. And the reason we have a lot of textual variants is that we have a lot of manuscripts. Now, I'm going to pause right there and emphasize and highlight that point. Because we have so many manuscripts, so many copies, we have a better chance, not a less, a better chance of getting at the the wording, the exact wording of the originals. The sheer volume of manuscripts that we have is actually something that benefits us It doesn't hurt us, and it makes it possible for us to scientifically and methodically and scholastically work back to know what those original documents said. Now, I know that uh, some of you listening may be fans of the Textus Receptus. You know, I got bad news for you, okay? And that's this, and that there there were only seven Greek manuscripts that the Textus Receptus is based on. 
none of them older than the 11th century. And two, two of them were primary over the other five. And so, you know, that doesn't really help us get back to the original wording of the original documents. What we And since the time of the Texas Receptus, we've literally discovered thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of more manuscripts. This is a good thing, not a bad thing. And it's men like Dr. Dan Wallace who understands what these different texts, these manuscripts say, can read them, and works scholastically to work with other scholars to piece together what that big puzzle is showing us with these thousands of different pieces. There's nothing in the ancient world that compares to the number of variants that we have for the New Testament, nor to the number of manuscripts. And this is, this is going to blow your mind when you think about this. But let me go back 300 years ago to Richard Bentley, the famous scholar that I'm sure you all read just before you go to bed because it'll help you go to bed. His uh, book, Remarks Upon a Discourse of Free Thinking. He said, if there had been but one manuscript of the Greek Testament at the restoration of learning about two centuries ago, back in the 1500s when the Reformation was taking place, then we would have no various readings at all. And would the text be in a better condition then than it is now that we have 30,000 variant readings? That's interesting. 300 years ago, 30,000 variants were known to exist. Now we have about 12 times as many as that because we have a lot more manuscripts. It's good, therefore, to have more anchors than one, and another manuscript to join the first would give more authority as well as security. I'm going to show you how this works here in a minute, but let me just state this. When it comes to the New Testament text, textual critics, New Testament scholars, are dealing with an embarrassment of riches. As for other ancient texts, they don't have this. They have a paucity of evidence. They're they're scratching their heads saying, how do I fill in the gaps between chapter 6 and chapter 9 because there's absolutely nothing? For the New Testament, that's not the problem we face. Instead, we face a problem of massive amounts of data. The latest number of how many Greek New Testament manuscripts we have, as of three weeks ago, is 5,824. And that's because of my Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. We have a a table out in the back. You can get some in in the lobby. You can see some of the brochures. I encourage you to just take a look at it to see what we're working on. We have been photographing and discovering manuscripts throughout the world. Take high-resolution digital photographs. And three weeks ago, we got the news from an institute in Germany that is the official cataloger of all Greek New Testament manuscripts. And the latest 11 manuscripts that we've discovered they have now given official uh, catalog numbers to. So that brings the number to 5,824. Now, I'll give you some more information that's not in that catalog, and that is there's about 30 more manuscripts. They still are behind on cataloging. So we're looking at about uh, 5,855, something like that. That's a lot of manuscripts. By the way, the average-sized Greek New Testament manuscript is more than 450 pages long. We're not talking about little fragments. Yes, there are some that are little fragments, and there are some that are huge manuscripts, but the average size is over 450 pages. <coughs> the New Testament was translated into various languages as well early on. Latin swept across Western Europe, and starting in the second century, the New Testament was translated into Latin. We have more manuscripts in Latin than we do in Greek, and we're not sure exactly what the count is, but we know it's over 10,000. 
It was then translated into other ancient languages, Syriac and Coptic, Armenian and uh, uh, Georgian and Gothic and Old Church Slavonic, uh, Arabic. Uh, it, it just it, The list goes on and on. Our best guess <coughs> is that there are at least 5,000 manuscripts in these other ancient translations and as many as 10,000. In fact, that's really a conservative guess. They just haven't been all uh, tabulated. And when I have debated uh, Dr. Ehrman, we've had three debates. I give him these figures. He's never disputed them because he knows that I'm underestimating what the numbers actually are. But if you had a magic wand and you could just wipe out all of these manuscripts in one fell swoop, would we be left without a witness? Would we have no idea what the New Testament said? No. And that's because of church fathers, scholars, uh, priests, patriarchs, bishops, uh, elders who wrote commentaries on the New Testament and they wrote homilies, sermons. And these men did not have the gift of brevity. We have, to date, counted more than one million quotations of the New Testament by these church fathers. Now, the New Testament itself has just under 8,000 verses in it. And uh, for these church fathers to quote it more than a million times, how much do they quote each time? Sometimes part of a verse, sometimes a whole verse, sometimes more than that. But that's an awful lot of quotations. We could reproduce virtually the entire New Testament many, many times over just on the basis of the quotations by the church fathers. Now, that is another, uh, as far as I'm concerned, that is a whole other issue that puts to bed this whole idea of the Textus Receptus. You read the church fathers, you can reproduce the entire Bible many times over from their sermons, from their epistles, from their apologetic works. You get what I'm saying here. But this also puts to bed this idea from the radical skeptics and the higher critics that we don't know what the Bible says and it's been changed over and over and over again. No, it hasn't. You go and you read the sermons of uh, Ambrose of Milan. You go and you read the sermons of uh, uh, Christostom. Okay, when, when you read the biblical text that they're preaching from in that are inserted into their homilies, you're going to go, oh, yeah, I know what that passage is. It's it's from right here because it's I, that's the same thing that says in my... Right. It's the same thing that it says in your Bible, your ESV or whatever. So <laughs> the radical skeptic really doesn't have a leg to stand on and plays upon, well, how do I put this? Um, it plays upon the fact that people don't know this data. If you are aware of this information, then you're not going to fall victim to uh, those radical skeptical tricks out there by like Bart Ehrman and others, Okay. You know, our problem isn't, as he's put, a paucity of, uh, you know, how did he put it, a paucity of sources, but an embarrassment of riches. You know, between all of the manuscripts, all of the different translations, and all of the writings of the Church Fathers and their extensive quotations of the Bible, <laughs> yeah, we have a really, really, really good idea. Like, super-de-duper good. Like, we pretty much know more than 99% of what the New Testament original documents said. But he'll get to that. We continue. It's a remarkable number. Now, how does this compare with other ancient literature? Now you're starting to get a picture of, wow, we got a lot of manuscripts for the New Testament. The average classical Greek writer has less than 20 copies of his work still in existence. And frankly, that's an extremely high estimate. You only have a handful of Greek authors who have 20 copies, handwritten copies of their uh, texts that still exist. But I like to use that number because when I uh, debate uh, skeptics, they, they can't dispute it at all. You stack these up, and they'd be about four feet high. So come up right up to the podium. 
Now, how high do you think the stack of New Testament manuscripts would be? Let's not count the quotations from fathers. I have no idea how to do that. But let's look at the, the uh, Greek texts and versions, just like we are with the, uh, these classical authors. Might be as tall as my head, you think? A little taller than that? Maybe as tall as the ceiling? Some of you are skeptical. Well, here's what it looks like. Now, he's using PowerPoint, so he's got a stack of classical works of antiquity, you know, uh, you know, Euripides and all that kind of stuff. Oh, it's four feet high. And then the New Testament, he's going to add to it. There's one stack, and then another stack appears, and this then another. Take all day. Yeah, it's going to take all day. So he's going to multiply it, and now six yeah, stacks little, have appeared. Maybe, maybe there's more New Testament. Oh, here we go. Some more manuscripts. That's, that's, that's getting there. Yeah. That looks pretty good. Now he's filled the screen with tiny little copies of, of manuscript stacks, and the stacks keep growing and growing and growing. That's as much as I can do in PowerPoint. <laughs> you multiply that stack by eight, and it's going to be more than one mile high. The New Testament manuscripts, compared to classical authors, four feet over a mile high. We have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the text. And when we talk about that, here's the thing you need to understand. Skeptics will say, how can you possibly tell what the New Testament originally said? It's been translated and copied so many times, we don't know. Yes, but we're not relying just on the latest versions of it. We can go back in time and we can see earlier copies and we can see many, many, many copies. If we're going to be skeptical about what the New Testament originally said, that skepticism on average on average, needs to be multiplied at least 1,000 times for any other classical Greek or Latin author. Herodotus was the historian of Alexander the Great. Suetonius uh, was uh, one of the three historians on the Caesars. If we don't have uh, the New Testament text, or if, we're if we have doubts about that, we should be a 1,000 times more skeptical about these other texts. Maybe Julius Caesar really never existed. Maybe there never was an Alexander the Great. Let's play fair with the evidence. The New Testament is phenomenal in terms of how much uh, we've gotten manuscripts. But it's also earlier than these other texts. We're not waiting for hundreds of years to see these copies. We're actually waiting decades for the New Testament. Let me just give you some illustrations. Greco-Roman authors, Pliny the Elder. These are all historians and biographers, so the kind of literary genre they are is like the New Testament. Pliny the Elder, about the time of the New Testament, we're waiting 700 years. 700 years before we get the first copy, and we have, I think, about 20 copies of it. Plutarch, we're waiting 800 years. Josephus, you've heard of him. His Antiquities of the Jews mentions Jesus, James, his brother, John the Baptist, and he mentions Herod Agrippa II, who died of worms when he uh, accepted praise as deity, mentioned in the book of Acts by Luke. We're waiting 800 years before we see a single copy of Jewish antiquities. That's pretty sobering. Polybius, we're waiting 1,200 years, does some fascinating biographies. Pausanias dealt with the geography of Greece 1,400 years before we see a single copy. And Pausanias' text, we're, we've got gaps that are so massive, we don't know what he says for three or four chapters at a pop. Herodotus, one of the two great historians, one of the two original historians, on, on which we base our understanding of historiography, of how to do history properly. We're waiting 1,500 years before we get the first substantial copies of Herodotus. 
He was the biographer of Alexander the Great. Xenophon's Hellenica, 1,800 years before we get any substantial copies. Now think about that. It's a great illustration to use. Xenophon, Hellenica. Scholars say this is essentially what Xenophon wrote. Yeah, we've got some questions. But the skepticism isn't as rampant as it would be with the New Testament. But if we were waiting as long for any substantial copies of the New Testament as classical author, as scholars have to wait for Xenophon, that means the New Testament copies that we have, the earliest copies we would have would be written, oh, about the time that the Wright brothers invented the airplane. Is anybody going to think that that's going to go back to the original? Well, let's play fair with the evidence. Look at these other scholars. These are some of the more prominent historians. And yet, we're waiting hundreds and hundreds of years to see any copies. Well, let me talk to you about the date of New Testament manuscripts. In the first millennium, up until the year A.D. 1000, we have about 15% of our New Testament manuscripts. That's hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts. But let's go back in time and say, well, do we have any in the first 500 years? The average classical author is waiting 500 years at least before we get any of his copies. The New Testament, we have the whole thing completely in multiple copies within the first 300 years. In multiple copies. Let me talk to you about the discovery of P-52, which was not a prototype of a fighter plane after the P-51 Mustang in World War II. Most of you didn't catch that because you don't know any, anything about history. Or you're not old enough to know about... You know, there was a thing called World War II, Adolf Hitler, never mind. <laughs> this papyrus... Well, let me back up and tell you some, some things about it before I get into the, the discussion of it. In the year 1844, a, a professor by the name of F.C. Bauer at Tübingen University in southern Germany applied what's called Hegelian dialectic to the New Testament. Now, you may have not heard of that term, and here it is Saturday morning. You say, I don't want to hear these big terms. I paid good money to come here so I could understand something. Okay, you probably have heard thesis, antithesis, and then what happens? Okay, two of you know. That's good. Um, this is kind of like Arkansas. Uh, so. Sorry. If any of you are from Arkansas, I apologize. I'll try to tell my jokes slower. Now, you have synthesis. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. F.C. Bauer had studied under Professor Hegel at the University of Tübingen, and he applied Hegelian philosophy to the New Testament. He said, you got Peter's version of Christianity. Paul's that was diametrically opposed to Peter's. And then the church hammered these two out and finally came to a synthesis that did not occur until after A.D. 160. In fact, he said John's gospel, which is the synthesis between Peter and Paul in his view, was not written until A.D. 170. That would mean that John didn't write it. He's not going to be living that long. And it would also mean that it has no historical value whatsoever about the life of Jesus. That view held sway in European scholarship for 90 years until 1934, when a scholar by the name of C.H. Roberts was visiting Manchester University, and he's rummaging around in the basement of the John Rylands Library, and he comes across a papyrus fragment. Now, he was a papyrologist. That was his discipline, but he worked in classical texts. 
He comes across this papyrus. It's about the size of the, of, of the palm of my hand, two and a half inches by three and a half inches. On one side, it was John 18, verses 31 through 33. On the back side, John 18, 37 and 38. He immediately recognized it as from the New Testament. And it was a, an ecstatic time for him because this papyrus is like finding the proverbial needle in the haystack. We have today over one million papyri that have been discovered with text on them. We have 127 that are New Testament papyri. These are, by definition, our earliest manuscripts. He sent photographs of this thing to the three leading papyrologists of Europe at the time. Each one independently came back and said, this manuscript should not be dated any later than A.D. 150. And it's probably closer to A.D. 100. Every one of them said that. A fourth demurred. He said, no, I think it probably was written in the 90s of the first century. Now, I don't know about you. I, I had a, a good education um, growing up in Newport Beach. And uh, what my teachers taught me was that, generally speaking, copies of a document are not made before the originals of those documents. Is that something you've probably been taught here too? How can a copy of John's gospel have been written 20, 10, 20 to 60 years earlier than the original of John? This was a scrap of papyrus that sent two tons of German scholarship to the flames. And it leads to this principle that I think is very important for us to think about. An ounce of evidence is worth a pound of presumption. In this case, an ounce of evidence is worth two tons of presumption. P52, very important. Is that the only manuscript we have from the 2nd century, from between A.D. 100 and 200? No. We have as many as a dozen manuscripts from that era. And then it starts increasing. Until we get to the 4th century, we have about 121 New Testament manuscripts with the whole New Testament multiplied many times over. Well, has the Bible been translated and retranslated so many times that we don't know what it originally said? That was our original question, and here's another way to look at it. If we go back 401 years ago to when the King James was published in May of 1611, what we discover is that it was the New Testament was based essentially on seven Greek manuscripts that a scholar had published about 100 years earlier. The earliest of these manuscripts is from the 11th century. Today, 2012... We have over 5,800 manuscripts, almost a 1,000 times as many manuscripts. And our earliest go back to the 2nd century, almost a 1,000 years earlier. Now, I'm going to pause right there. I want you to think about this for a second. 1611, okay? The number of manuscripts that were used in the Textus Receptus, seven. Earliest manuscript among them, 11th century. Now, it, it, you know, it's 400 years later, it's, and uh, here we are. And in 2013, and we've got more than 5,800 manuscripts, the earliest of which goes back to the second century. For somebody to claim that they, you know, basically would say, well, listen, I'm a Textus Receptus only person. What they're basically saying is, is that I believe only in those seven original manuscripts that date no later than the 11th century. You would ask that person, well, then what do you do with all of the manuscripts? Because there were seven in 1611, and now there's over you know 5,800. What are we supposed to do with you know 5,800 manuscripts and, and that, uh, that we found? Oh, you can't trust any of them, not one of them. No, nope, you got to get rid of them. Yeah, they can't, you can't use those. That's how they would reason and argue. That doesn't make any sense. 
All of the evidence shows that we're to take all of these old manuscripts and understand what they're telling us and piece together from them a good, 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 uh, you know, te- New Testament text that is as close to the original as possible with the older manuscripts having governing power over the newer ones. That's the idea. So if you're a Texas Receptus only person, I'm sorry, but basically you have an intenable position due to the fact that you're basically saying that only seven Greek manuscripts, no, and the oldest of them is 11th century. Those, That's it. That has to be the Word of God. Anything we find earlier than that, we got to throw out. That's ridiculous. In fact, that would actually open us up to more radical skeptical attacks rather than shut the mouths of radical skeptics. It's our <clears throat> embarrassment of riches when it comes to these manuscripts that actually makes us certain about what these texts say. We have confidence in these texts, and all of these extra manuscripts that we have give us evidence and evidence and evidence that we can trust what the biblical text says. As time goes on, we're not getting farther and farther away from the original text. We're actually getting closer and closer to it. That's the first thing you need to take home. Is that pretty clear? Much clearer than Hegelian dialectic, right? And I I hope this is encouraging for you. We are actually getting closer and closer to the original text. We haven't lost those manuscripts that the King James translators use. Just think about it. Oh, yes, well, I've just translated this text. I guess I now have to take this manuscript and put it in the fire. Nobody did that. That's, that's silly, but we've got to think through these things. So the second question, I told you the first question we'd spend a lot of our time on. The second question, the nature of variants. What kinds of variants are there? Well, 99% make virtually no difference at all. They are spelling variants that don't change the meaning. Like the name John. Let me emphasize that. 99% of the textual variants make no difference at all. They're spelling variants, things like that. Listen in. In Greek, every single time we see the name John in the New Testament, the word is ioannes. But it could have one N in the middle or two. The manuscripts differ. So each time you see that, you've got a variant. So there's differences in spelling that we see among the manuscripts. (laughs) Sorry. But you understood what I was saying. Ancient scribes were no better spellers than we are today. But they didn't have spell check. Now, one of the common kinds of differences that we have among the manuscripts is the use of the article, the word the, with proper names. You would see in, in Luke chapter 3 that Joseph and the, and the Mary left Jerusalem. Well, that's in Greek. We don't translate it that way. It would be doofuses if we did. And so when you look at that, you say, well, we have to translate this Joseph and Mary. I wrote my master's thesis on when the word the does not occur in Greek. I wrote my doctoral dissertation on when it does occur. I can guarantee you these two works will cure the most hopeless insomniac. The word the occurs 20,000 times in the Greek New Testament. I still don't know why it occurs in many places. I don't think anybody does. But the smallest group of variants are those that are both meaningful and viable. That is, they do affect the meaning of the text. They change the meaning of the text somehow, and they are viable. They have a good chance of being authentic. It may come from some early manuscripts, Maybe just one early manuscript, or it may come from a group of early ones, or ones that have some strong credibility in some other ways. Let me tell you, uh, I'll give you two illustrations this morning. 
But first of all, less than 1% of all textual variants fit this group. Less than 1%. In fact, the number is approximately one-fourth of 1%. It all depends on whether you're going to say that's actually uh, meaningful or not, but uh, some people think different ones are and are not. But I'll give you a couple that are, that are pretty meaningful texts. Mark 9.29. <clears throat> Jesus' disciples went and tried to exercise a demon. Didn't work. They couldn't cast him out. So they come and talk to him, and he says, Well, this kind can come out only by prayer and fasting. Now, I put and fasting in brackets because the earliest manuscripts don't have and fasting. But most of the manuscripts, which are later, do have and fasting. So if you're on the mission field and you're casting out demons, it's kind of important to know whether prayer is going to be adequate to do the job or whether you need to fast as well. As you can tell by looking at me that I I hold to the shorter reading. (laughs) And I'm looking forward to lunch day. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm cutting out early. This is a meaningful variant and a viable variant. And it's the only place that we have in the New Testament where it says that fasting may be required to exercise demons. So it's meaningful and viable. It does change the text, but how significant is it? Here's one that may be more relevant to you, more interesting, more whatever. It's Revelation 13, 18. Let the one who has insight calculate the beast's number, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, everybody knows the Antichrist number is 666. Not so fast. In the middle of the 19th century in Paris, a manuscript was deciphered that had never been deciphered before by a scholar who spent two years on it, and he found at Revelation 13, 18 that the number of the beast was 616. Now, I had the opportunity to examine that manuscript a couple years ago, and sure enough, it says 616. Well, that's just one manuscript. Well, it turned out to be our second most important manuscript for Revelation. Its text is terrific in almost all of Revelation. Maybe it's right here when all the others are wrong. But there were no others that said 616 until 1998. When at Oxford University, the papyrologists were going through all these papyri, the vast majority of which had never been published, and they came across a small fragment, actually 26 fragments that spread out over nine chapters. One of them the size of a postage stamp had this verse on it, or at least part of this verse. And it had the number of the beast as 616. Well, that's just one manuscript. It's also our earliest manuscript for Revelation. So the second most important one and the earliest one that we are still trying to evaluate how important it is because we just get fragments, both have 616. I went to Oxford and I saw that manuscript under a magnifying glass and a microscope. Sure enough, it says 616. Now, even with all that evidence, which is really significant, most scholars today would say, we believe that the number of the beast is 666. 616, that's the neighbor of the beast. He lives a few doors down. We're not sure. I don't know. It could take hundreds of hours to determine this. And and when all the dust is settled, we're still going to say, we're not really sure. But wouldn't it be interesting in the next Bible translations, and I've been a consultant for four of them, that at this verse we put the number of the beast as 616. That would send about seven tons of popular Christian literature to the flames. I, I would do it just to spike those folks, but integrity has to rule. But here's the point about Revelation 13, 18. I know of no church 
No denomination, no Bible college, no theological seminary, no theological institute of any sort that has as its doctrinal statement, we believe in the virgin birth, we believe in the deity of Christ, we believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, and we believe that the number of the beast is 666. (laughs) It may be important, but it's not that important. So what theological beliefs do depend on textually suspect passages? Our third question. Go back to that great scholarly tome, The Da Vinci Code. And Sir Lee Teabing tells Sophie, my dear, until that moment in history, this is the year A.D. 325, when the Council of Nicaea met to define what they meant by the deity of Christ. Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal What Teabing is declaring is that Constantine, the emperor, actually invented the deity of Christ in A.D. 325. Dan Brown actually believed this. It was based on another book that said, there are no New Testament manuscripts before the 4th century. Well, there's at least 48 of them before the 4th century, but they they didn't do the research. There's a lot of misinformation that's going on nowadays. But here's the point. Here... In this book, they're claiming the deity of Christ came later, 300 years after the time that Jesus lived. Is that really true? Well, you remember when I said an ounce of evidence is worth a pound of presumption? Let's see another ounce of evidence. This is another papyrus, number P66, written about A.D. 175. We're not exactly sure the date. It's between 150 and 200. But 165, 175 is probably the closest we can get. This is the first leaf of John's Gospel. Uh, Read along, if you would, with me. (laughs) It's going to say something in John 1.1 that I'm sure you've never heard before because this is before the deity of Christ was invented in the 4th century, remember. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now, I know you've never heard that before. Every New Testament manuscript says that. Every single one in every single language. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If Constantine invented the deity of Christ, then the man would have been about 180 years old at the Council of Nicaea. And he must have written this document too. An ounce of evidence is worth a pound of presumption. It's not just the deity of Christ that we see goes all the way back to the original. But it's all of our essential doctrines. In fact, here's, here's the evidence that I want to give to you. In Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus, a paperback version came out about a year after his hardback version appeared. Within the first three months, there were 100,000 copies of this sold. He ended up on Stephen Colbert's uh, report. He was on John Stewart's Daily Show, in, uh, interviewed by NPR and uh, Washington Post, all sorts of places. And they kept saying... Wow, this is an amazing book. What what are you really trying to say here? And he kept saying, well, theology has changed and the Orthodox scribes have corrupted Scripture. And so in the appendix to his paperback book, the editors asked this, why do you believe these core tenets of Christian Orthodoxy to be in jeopardy based on the scribal errors you discovered in the biblical manuscripts? Notice they don't ask, do you believe? They read his book to say that you do believe this. Tell us why. Summarize your arguments. Look at his answer. Essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. 
This is a skeptic saying this. This is the guy on whose works Muslims and atheists are basing their wild claims that the Orthodox have so corrupted the text that it must not have been Orthodox at all originally. They don't know what they're talking about. But they're basing it on Dr. Ehrman's work. He does know what he's talking about. I happen to disagree with him about a number of things, but I don't disagree with him over this. In fact, in our three debates, at the end of each debate, I say, by the way, I think you agree with me, Bart, that essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants. And I put this screen up. He's never disputed it. He, he said it. It's in print. He can't deny himself. That's something we could take to the bank, folks. Well, let me conclude with the final question. what we have now, what they wrote then. Is it in all particulars? I don't know. The ESV is different from the New American Standard, which is different from the NIV, which is different from the NET in a number of particulars. I don't know if it's 666 or 616. There are literally hundreds of places. Not too many hundreds, but there are hundreds of places where I'm not sure what the original wording is. But I do know that when it comes to the essentials, we've got it. So is it in all particulars? Probably not. We don't have absolute certainty. But when it comes to the essentials, there we do. We have absolute certainty. Yes, this has not been affected. Even a critic, a, critic, a skeptic like Bart Ehrman could not deny that. And so I leave you with this final thought. No essential Christian belief is jeopardized by any viable variant. Thank you for your attention. There you go. No essential Christian belief is in jeopardy from any textual variance. And we know with greater than 99% certainty what the original manuscripts said because of the embarrassment of riches that we have with the thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts, very ancient and old, going all the way back to the second century of the New Testament. That is something you can take to the bank. So when you open up your Bible tonight or tomorrow and you read it, you can have confidence that you are reading the Word of God. And the central message of this revelation from God is that He loves you. That's right. That He stepped into humanity, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried for your sins and for your justification and rose bodily from the grave. Therefore, repent of your sin and your wickedness and believe this good news and be forgiven. Know with confidence and certainty that this is true. All right, that's our bonus episode of Fighting for the Faith for Labor Day. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>